Genesis 9 And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So we just read, I will not destroy, and we read, I will require a reckoning. Where do mercy and accountability meet? The account of the global flood reveals both concepts. Can God be both merciful and just? Are mercy and justice applicable both to the penetrate to the perpetrator and the victim? Are we getting something, anything out of the it's not recording? Well, there's more than one way to communicate. 
Can God be both merciful and just? Are mercy and justice applicable both to the perpetrator and the victim? I've come to conclude that most of us desire accountability when we are, or we are acquainted with, the victim. If I know the person who's been hurt, there better be justice. But we desire mercy when we, or someone that we know, is the accused. Well, I know he did, but after all, he's a good boy most of the time. And so our demands for mercy and justice seem rather fluid. This has become abundantly clear when one looks at the politics of policing that have escalated following the George Floyd incident in Minnesota. Those who wish to hold law enforcement accountable have made demands of reform and defunding. While many have observed that reducing police resources leads to an increase in crime. But at the same time, calls to hold offenders accountable by stricter sentencing, that appears harsh. While many have documented that strict sentencing often ignores societal influences, such as poverty and mental illness. So can we be both merciful and just? Can there be mercy and accountability? Today's text shows us that God is to be worshipped as the absolute source of mercy, while mankind must give an account for his actions and his attitudes. Mercy and justice are both met when the wrath of God is diverted to another. The first thing I see in Genesis 9 is that God is renewing his provision for mankind. The provisions that we see in the first verses of chapter 9 are actually rooted in values that are demonstrated at the end of chapter 8. If your Bible has a headline for the section, that headline is probably just before 820. It's not at the beginning of chapter 9. The three oldest covenants in Genesis are basically God's goodness to man. God says, I want to be good to man. And I expect something in return. In Eden... Some would label this a mandate rather than a covenant. God gives the earth to man. And God says, what do I expect in return? Obedience. I give you the earth. Don't eat from that tree. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises to bless Abraham. And what does God ask in return? He expects the descendants of Abraham to be set apart 
by the sign of circumcision. And in the covenant with Noah that we see in front of us, God promises to divert and to delay his wrath. He says, I will not destroy with water again, but if I'm not going to destroy you for disobedience, God says, this is what I expect. I expect you to keep each other in line. I believe in this verse, verse 1, we have a return to God's goodness in Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam worshipped freely with God, and God communicated freely with Adam, and there was genuine worship and adoration. And chapter 8, verse 20 tells us, when Noah came out of the ark... He adored and he worshipped God so much that he gave him an offering. Because it says the very first word of chapter 8 verse 20, then Noah did so and so. Then is a response to the 375 days and the 500 years before that. Noah saw what was going on, and he says, when I see this, there's something inside of me that says, God, you are worthy. See, we tend to equate worship with music. Stand with me as we enter a time of worship. But much of the ancient world did not equate worship with music. They equated worship with sacrifice. Because I love God, I will give to God. In the New Testament, the word love is connected to obedience. If you love me, you will obey me. So worship is not just music. Worship is sacrifice. Love is communication of the heart. And love is obedience. See, many tend to consider the two music medleys as our time of worship. But I know The desire of our elders in our worship committee is to see our gathering in order to work together and to encourage each other. Whenever we gather, the whole gathering is worship because we're saying God is worthy of my effort and of my energy and of my affection. Our time of praying with and for each other is worship. Our time of offering is worship. And our time of hearing what God says to us so that we can live the way he wants is worship. It's all worship. And it's all in that heart that Noah says when he comes out of the ark, he says, I love God so much I've got to do something about it. God has placed within all of us an ability to observe the Lord's goodness, and to respond to that goodness. That response to God's goodness is worship in all of its forms. So as we see Noah demonstrating a heart of worship, how does God respond to Noah's worship, which is a response to God's goodness? God is good. Noah responds. God says, now I'm going to provide for you even more. In response to Noah's worship, God restates the blessing that he first gave to Adam. 
But he doesn't only restate the blessing. God actually increases the blessing in verses 2 and 3. Because in verses 2 and 3, God says, not only can you eat from all the plants, but I now give you every beast. Now, scholars disagree about man's diet before the flood. Was man vegetarian? Was man carnivorous? I see no explicit instruction to eat meat in the first eight chapters of Genesis. But there's also no prohibition against it in those same eight chapters. So man's not commanded to be vegetarian. Man's not commanded not to be vegetarian. If God did not intend, and I realize I'm reading between lines and I'm drawing conclusions, why was Abel raising livestock if he didn't intend to eat it? Some believe that Eden was vegan, but when Adam and Eve were chased out of the garden, then death entered into humanity, so then the eating of livestock was permitted. Not commanded, but it was permitted, so that's why Cain and Abel. Others would wonder. If death did not happen until Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden... Did lions and coyotes eat plants before the fall? Did God create those animals with sharp, pointy teeth for tearing? Or did he give them grinding teeth like cattle? And if God gave them sharp, pointy, tearing teeth, we can assume they tore. What about the fossils of creatures that modern man calls dinosaurs? Grinding teeth or pointy teeth? No. I get a little bit sidetracked here. John Walton, who was a professor at Moody when I was a student, although I never had him for a class directly, believes that man ate domesticated animals from Genesis 3 until chapter 8. That's why Abel raised livestock, because mankind ate domesticated animals. But Walton believes that here in chapter 9, God says, not only can you eat the domesticated animals, who happen to obey their mamas whenever their mamas tell them to do something, but you can also eat from every beast, from every bird, from everything that creeps and from all the fish. In other words, Walton says, they ate cows and sheep and goats before, but after the flood, hunting and fishing is allowed. To which our outdoorsman said, so regardless of what happened before the flood, we know after the flood, God says, every beast is yours to eat. Now, to be honest, there are later restrictions and also relaxing of those restrictions upon which meat we should eat. In Exodus, they only cooked the lamb. It doesn't say anything about steaks. In the wilderness, animals were divided between clean and unclean. When we get to Daniel, 
Daniel says, give me a diet of vegetables only. Peter was instructed when the sheet came down out of heaven, the voice said, kill and eat. And Peter says, I can't kill that. And God says, don't call unclean what I call clean. So yes, the rest of the Bible has lots of rules about meat and restrictions and releasing of those instructions. Later on, Paul says, you have freedom of conscience when it comes to the meat that is sold in the pagan temples. So when someone tells you that they are following a biblical diet, you, can, you have my permission to ask them which part of the Bible. Because Genesis 9, verses 2 and 3, God gives his blessing and he spreads his blessing so that every animal was open for diet. See, God is renewing and expanding his provision for mankind. But notice, as God says, you can kill anything, he he does put a restriction on it. Because he connects the blood or the life of the animal. This life blood is a theme that will be revisited in Exodus. Now you'll remember, while this is describing events that happened long, long ago, God is telling this story to Moses, who's writing it down and giving it to the children of Israel in the wilderness. And what did the children of Israel just do? God says, you will paint the blood on the sides and the top of the door. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so this connection with the blood being the life of the animal is an explanation for the people right there of what they had just done that is rooted in things that happened years and years before. So I I simply conclude like this. Hunting and fishing responsibly is within the blessing that God extended to man after the flood. Now, I told you that this is one of three covenants. The Eden covenant, the Noah covenant, and then later we will see the Abraham covenant. See, some covenants are unilateral. One party says, this is what I'm going to do. And sometimes a covenant is bilateral. It places expectations on both parties. Where God says, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I expect you to do. And in the following verses, we see what God expects of us. We see that God requires accountability from mankind. Now, the first example of required accountability is that of capital punishment. In verses 5 through 6, we read that there is time associated with the crime. And God says, whoever does this crime... I expect other human beings to hold them accountable for that crime. See, we we hear today, I saw it just on the news uh, four hours ago. My body, my choice. 
But that doesn't consider that that baby has a body of his or her own as well. Yes, it's your choice to deal with your body, but that body also has rights before God. Whenever there's street violence, street thugs, and that's not racist, it's white, black, Hispanic, brown, dark, When I say thugs, I'm not saying one race. Street violence, street thugs rarely consider the value of the person who is an obstacle to their desires. He says, she says, this is what I want. I want the money from that bank, and if you get in the way, you're just collateral damage. You don't matter. I want this, and if you get in my way... So be it. Whenever one person violently exercises power over another, the perpetrator is viewing himself as Lord over that other. I will have my way and you don't matter. We will see in the Mosaic Covenant, in the Ten Commandments, it starts with, you are not a God. The Ten Commandments starts with, there is one God, and Yahweh is his name. And so if you think you have the right to have your will, regardless of the value of another person, you have just made yourself a God. You have established yourself as Lord. My way is most important, and you don't matter. And God says that's not the image of God. God says there are consequences when we disregard the value of other people by asserting our will. So he says, if you shed blood, your blood will be required. Because that is not what the image of God is about. There are consequences. I also believe that capital punishment is a deterrent. It keeps lawlessness from increasing. We saw in Genesis 3 through 8 that wickedness was growing and spreading over the generations. And as wicked people had wicked sons who had wicked sons who had wicked sons, the wickedness is growing and God's dis. God allowed it to grow until he says, hey, it's time for a do-over. we got to get rid of all the wickedness, and we'll start with Noah, three sons, and their wives. And so God is saying, as we get this fresh start, we're not going to allow wickedness to grow and grow and spread and spread. God says, I expect you to hold one another accountable so that wickedness will not grow. That's why capital punishment is a deterrent. See, the descendants of Cain had been reproducing with impunity, which permitted violence and corruption to multiply for hundreds of years. And in chapter 8, verse 21, God admits, he says, I know that wickedness is within the heart of mankind, even from his youth. God says, my plan to mediate that wickedness that is in the heart is that you guys need to hold one another accountable. 
When you see somebody else disregarding the image of God in their fellow human being, it's time to step up. It's time to address the disrespect. And so we deter the spread of crime. And thirdly, I believe capital punishment, it comes from these words, because of the image of God. It says at the last part of verse 6, Why do I say all this? Because God made mankind in his own image. We cannot ignore the image of God in other human beings without repercussions. When he says, you will give an account, that's not the act of a vindictive, angry God. It's an attempt for God to say, because I have placed my glory in every human being, you need to value every human being, and you need to seek the glory of God in that person that you're tempted to disregard. See, capital punishment does not mean that the police officer or that the warden is more valuable than the convicted person. Capital punishment is a mutual agreement that the perpetrator has been convicted of a crime that is bigger than any individual who is active in the penalty. It's not that the warden is valuable and the inmate is not. It's a mutual agreement. Warden and inmate both agree, yes, I have broken a rule that's bigger than all of us. And I must pay a consequence. Whenever I talk about capital punishment, and I realize we come from a lot of religious and faith backgrounds, some would say to be pro-life demands both opposition to abortion and capital punishment. Because the image of God is in the inmate just as the image of God is in the preborn human. But I believe there is a difference. I think a person can be pro life, pro capital punishment, and opposed to abortion because the image of God within the uterus is innocent. That that preborn child has never exercised his or her will on another image bearer. But the imago Dei within the inmate has now been marred beyond repair because that inmate has imposed his or her human will on another image bearer. Criminal punishment is only because another person has been offended. It's because that inmate has exercised his will over another person. And that's very different from the innocent preborn human who has not exercised his or her will. So I believe if we are thankful that God is merciful, if we desire to live the way that God intends, then we need to hold one another accountable the way he has said in verses 5 and 6. So God says, I'm going to bless you. You get to eat whatever kind of meat you want. You're going to hold one another accountable. 
And if you do that, you will flourish as a human race. I think verse 7 tells us that there is both quality and quantity. I, I think when he says in, in verse 7, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly and multiply. It's the same duo that simply said two different ways. Faithful or fruitful is the same as increase greatly. And multiply is the same as multiply. The first mandate to be fruitful or to increase greatly is a, is a mandate to influence, to make life better for others and yourself. When he says be fruitful, increase greatly, he's saying you need to make life better. Now, better is not more comfortable. Better is not simple quality of life. When we are increasing in our influence, to be better is to see the purpose of God become more accessible. We are to increase our influence by making the purpose of God accessible to people around us. People who have never heard the gospel need to hear the gospel. People who have never heard the promises of God need to hear the promises of God. As Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we are fruitful, when we, when we are effective, we bring his kingdom to earth. The second mandate is one of quantity. Not only are we to be fruitful, we are to multiply. Under the shadow of image bearing, the fact that God puts his image inside of human beings, he then calls those image bearers to multiply. It's an expression of increasing the presence of Yahweh followers in all places. Not only do you make life better so that they can pursue God, we increase in the influence of Yahweh followers or of Christ followers. See, I'm not into power politics, but my prayer is that we would make disciples of Jesus Christ of all in Chase County. And this is grounded both in quality disciples of Jesus Christ, and in quantity, we aren't done until all have been reached. So you will see making disciples of all in Chase County is rooted in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. God says, this is what I ask of you. So God has renewed his blessings. He requires accountability but finally, I do see in this text, in our final few moments, that God redirects his wrath from mankind. Verses 8 through 17. First of all, we see God displaying his mercy. God says, I'm making a promise with humanity. I'm making a promise with all who walk upon the face of the earth. You don't have to worry about flood wiping out life anymore. The promise is not against localized flooding. Sorry to those of you who live in the floodplain. 
but it is specifically a promise not to use water in a universal destruction. God renews his mercy as he says, I will not judge you immediately and totally for wickedness. And in response to that, he says, I will give you a symbol of this reality in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 9. Just as a wedding ring is a symbol of the promise, it's not the promise itself, and baptism is a symbol of new life, it's not the act of life itself, God attaches significance to a symbol. And he says the symbol is the bow in the sky. When you see the bow in the sky, you will remember the promise that I have made. Now, the word for bow is literally the word for an archer's bow. In Genesis chapter 27, Esau uses a bow to hunt game. In 2 Samuel 22, David uses a bow to engage in war. So the literal word, I will set my bow in the sky, is the same word for an archer's bow. However... Some theologians don't see that symbolism of God hanging his bow in the sky. Because they say the word is not just bow, but what we have in here, I will set my bow in the clouds. And so we have to look at the whole phrase, the bow that is in the clouds, not just his symbol of wrath. Just as a butterfly has nothing to do with butter, a bow in the clouds has nothing to do with archery, would be the claim. But just because your wedding ring looks a particular way and has a unique significance to you, that does not mean that all people have the same opinion of your ring. So there's room for differing opinions. Some people see significance. That God says, I will not hurl arrows at you. Did he ever hurl arrows at people? Personally, I believe it's a travesty that the symbol of God's promise has been twisted in current usage. The rainbow is now used as a symbol of pride that nobody has a right to question. The logic in some minds is, if God isn't going to destroy humanity, then nobody has a right to question my choices or my identity. But I have two problems with that logic. The first is, in chapter 9, verse 5, God just spoke that we have to keep each other accountable. So to say, if God doesn't judge me, you can't judge me, it's totally ignoring what God just said in verse 5. I expect you to keep one another in check. The second problem I have with saying that the bow is somehow you have no right to talk about my life is just because God promises not to destroy life by flood, it's not a promise that he ignores sin. Patience, mercy, and tolerance are not to be confused with ignorance or forgetfulness. God's mercy does not negate his wrath. God remembers his covenant. God chooses to deal with sin in a specific way. 
God delivers his wrath. For in verses 14 through 16, it says, I will remember. Whenever I see the bow, I will remember. I will remember that that sin has to be dealt with. Sin cannot be ignored. In order for God to be just, he must not interfere with the consequence of sin. God's righteous wrath upon sin and disobedience was never dispelled. It wasn't disregarded. All of God's wrath against sin was stored up until it was poured out in full on Christ. See the word remember in verses 15 and 16? God sees our sin. God remembers that he promised not to invoke death upon us immediately, but he remembers that that penalty remains. And so Jesus took that penalty upon himself. Jesus, God in flesh, came to earth, lived sinlessly, and as our substitute for sin, died the death that each one of us deserves. God does pour out his wrath on sin, only he chose to pour it out on Christ so that we could be forgiven. It's what we call double imputation. When Christ prayed, not my will, but yours be done in the garden, he agreed to have the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pour out all of the wrath for sin upon Jesus. And he took upon himself our sin and all of that wrath, and the double part of imputation, then the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you and to me. His righteousness is reckoned to us because our sin was poured on him. See, the beauty of the gospel is not that our sin is ignored. It is that Jesus paid the price for sin for anyone who will call upon him in repentance and faith. I look back at these 17 verses and and number one, I say, we must prioritize, like Noah did, our love and our devotion for God. When we see what he has done, we must honor him with lives of worship. Secondly, we must accept accountability for sin. We must accept accountability for our own sins by repenting of that sin. And we place our faith in the redirection of God's wrath And we rely upon the ransom that he has paid. I guess I conclude it this way. God chooses to divert his wrath so that we can have fellowship with him now and into eternity. Our final song for this morning is an admission that I depend upon God's goodness. It's a song that's not in your hymn book, so you're going to have to follow up front. As Miss Jan comes to play, you may know the song, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Stand with me as we sing.